Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey that the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Hello, oddities. Welcome to the Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me. I got a fun show planned for you today. We're going to be getting into Those We Don't Speak Of, Part 6. It's our ongoing series on Zionism, the history of it all, even modern history that's related to it. And again, I'll say, like I did on the last episode, I have no hate in my heart for anyone. I just approach this specific subject like I would any other subject, whether it be the Freemasons, the Jesuits, uh, the Rosicrucians, what have you. So that's what we're doing. And it is a bit forbidden to talk about this, and I don't understand why. It's just history, not hate, just history. So that's what we're doing with this. We're digging a little deeper than you're going to hear on most shows about this subject anyway. So thank you for hanging in there with me, and let's just get right to the meat of the fruit. Now, one of the main things people say to me, they bring up when they find out I'm doing these episodes on those we don't speak of, is... But what about the Arabs? What about the Muslims? What about Hamas? So I wanted to talk a little bit about that, a little bit of uh, information that a lot of people aren't aware of. Most people know in the alt-media conspiracy community that America, the U.S., through their own foreign policies in the Middle East, brought what the CIA calls blowback by supporting these various rebels, by supporting the Mujahideen, starting under Jimmy Carter, along with Zbigniew Brzezinski. That eventually led to having the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and even ISIS and this long, never-ending war on terror where millions and billions and trillions have been spent on it. 
So many lives have been lost, ruined, people displaced. It's created havoc all across the Middle East. It's caused refugees to have to be resettled all over the world. So it's really caused global unrest. And so those ideas of those policies of arming these different rebel groups, these jihadists, it's a horrible idea. It always comes back to bite us. There were times in the Middle East and Afghanistan where we had State Department-backed rebels fighting CIA-backed rebels. Millions and millions of dollars worth of weapons disappeared numerous times. Even equipment would disappear. So you look how we ended up leaving Afghanistan with all those weapons and equipment there, which I don't believe for a second was by accident. So let's look here. We're going to, once again, a Jewish-Israeli source, like I like to do. And this one is the Times of Israel, which is a pretty conservative news site in Israel. The article is by Shlomo Allegra. It says, Hamas, Israel's own creation. This is way back December 3, 2018. During the 1970s, the greatest enemy to Israel was known as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, who was known for waging terror attacks on Israeli civilians and targets all over the world. The PLO was known for being a socialist organization whose sole purpose was the elimination of the state of Israel, along with the establishment of a socialist state of Palestine, where the constitution would be run by secular Marxism rather than Islam. Due to the short-sightedness of the Rabin administration, R-A-B-I-N, there in Israel, and later Begin, Menachem Begin, there was an idea to bring about a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood into Gaza and the Palestinian territories to counterbalance the strength and popularity of the PLO. In the early 70s, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin started the organization Mujama al-Islamiyah, which helped establish the Islamic University in Gaza, hospitals, and schools. Just like the United States was funding the Taliban to fight in Afghanistan against the Soviets to bring down the communists, so too was Israel selling arms to Iran to fight their archenemy, Iraq, during the early 80s. Islamic fundamentalism was not seen as a threat to world peace. Instead, it was Marxist terrorists around the world who were seen as a threat. So Muslim extremists were seen as natural allies against godless communists. The precursor to Hamas was from the Muslim Brotherhood, who were persecuted by the secular Ba'athist government of Egypt to the point their leader, Saeed Altbi, was executed by the Egyptian government in 1966. Egypt and secular socialist Arab governments were at war at the time against Islamic extremism, so the Israelis saw them as a natural ally against their common enemy. Sheikh Yassin was on such good terms with the Israeli state that he would receive treatment in Israeli hospitals. According to Andrew Higgin, Israel's military-led administration in Gaza looked favorably on the paraplegic cleric who set up a wide network of schools, clinics, a library, and kindergartens. Sheikh Yassin formed the Islamic group Mujama al-Islamiyah, which was officially recognized by Israel as a charity and then in 1979 as an association. 
Israel also endorsed the establishment of the Islamic University of Gaza, which it now regards as a hotbed of militancy. The university was one of the first targets hit by Israeli warplanes in 2008-2009, Operation Cast Lead. Many Israeli government officials saw the improvement of the quality of life in the Palestinian territories as a way to prevent radicalization of the Arab residents. So in 1979, Mujama al-Islamiyah got the status as a charity organization with the ability to be able to raise millions of dollars in decades. According to Truthseeker, as the fight between rival student factions at Birzit grew more violent, Brigadier General Shalom Harari, hmm, I wonder if there's any connection there, then a military intelligence officer in Gaza, says he received a call from Israeli soldiers manning a checkpoint on the road out of Gaza. They had stopped a bus carrying Islamic activists who wanted to join the battle against the Fatah at Birzit. I said, if they want to burn each other, let them go, recalls Mr. Harari. Israeli military thinking during the time figured it would be great if the Islamists and the socialists were to continue fighting each other since it would take away their focus on fighting Israel. According to Tharur, Israeli jailed Yassin in 1984 on a 12-year sentence after the discovery of hidden arm caches was released a year later. Israel had Sheikh Yassin in custody three years before the first infatata started. If Israel had kept him in custody for his whole sentence, perhaps Hamas would not have gotten to do the amount of damage they did during the first infatata. According to the Interceptor, Brigadier General Yitzhak Segev, who was the Israeli military governor in Gaza in the early 1980s, Segev later told a New York Times reporter that he had helped finance the Palestinian Islamist movement as a counterweight to the secularists and leftists of the Palestine Liberation Organization and the Fatah Party, led by Yasser Arafat, who himself referred to Hamas as a creature of Israel. This has actually been talked about a lot if you start looking back at it. General Segev himself even admits to funding Hamas himself with Israeli taxpayers' money that was later used to kill the same people who were funding them. Now, doesn't that sound just like American foreign policy? In 1987, when an Israeli military truck collided with a Palestinian vehicle, killing four Palestinians in the car accident, the first infatata started. In the same year of 1987, during the Infatada, Hamas was founded and even staged its first attack on Israel in 1988, abducting and killing two IDF soldiers. All of a sudden, Israel no longer saw Hamas as an asset, but as a terror group equal in comparison with the PLO. The car accident at the Erez crossing caused mass protests in the following months, leading to the people being involved in violent riots against the IDF. Another source claims the trigger for the first infatata was the gliders operation when terrorists infiltrated Israeli territory with a glider from southern Lebanon, resulting in the deaths of six Israeli soldiers. By the end of the first infatata, coinciding with the Madrid conference in 1991, resulted with many Palestinians disillusioned with the PLO because 1,200 Palestinians had been killed during the first infatata. Hamas gained more support since they still refused to even acknowledge Israel's right to exist as a political entity. Many Palestinians started to support them 
since their 1988 charter stated the complete denial of Israel's existence in the charter. I don't know why it says charter twice. I think there are some periods missing in here. It's a little confusing. Hamas became even more dangerous during the Second Infatada when they were responsible for several suicide bombings across Israel in the early 2000s. Death of many Israeli citizens led to the attempted assassination of Khalid Masial in Jordan, who was stabbed with a poisonous syringe in broad daylight by Mossad agents who were caught. Possible diplomatic crisis and execution of the Mossad agents by the Jordanian government forced Israel to trade Sheikh Yassin for the Mossad agents, as well as provide the antidote for Khalid Masal, subsequently saving his life in the process. During the same period, Israel launched Operation Defensive Shield throughout the West Bank, which, as a result, brought IDF soldiers in areas they were not supposed to be in, according to the Oslo Accords. The result of the operation led to a significant decrease in the amount of terror attacks in Israel and the West Bank. The West Bank became gradually safer. Today, anyone can drive through Highway 60 or Highway 90 without fear of being murdered by a terrorist. Israel did not do the same thing in Gaza and eliminate Hamas as a terrorist entity. Instead, Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005 all of its citizens and military, which acted as a buffer between the Gaza Strip and the rest of Israel. Hamas took advantage of the weakness of Israel and used this to their advantage for propaganda purposes that through their armed resistance, they were able to kick out the Israelis from Gaza. And skipping a couple of paragraphs down at the bottom, Israel has created this monster and will one day have to deal with its complete elimination. The only thing is, when this happens, due to Hamas's international support and military prowess, Israel will have to deal with the public backlash for its soldiers killed and international backlash for civilians killed, but it will eventually have to take action because Israel cannot continue to coexist with a terror state inside itself that continues to be a threat to its own citizens. Then he suggests you check out Nick Kohlerstrom's How Israel Helped Spawn Hamas. Now we're going to go to a couple of other sites and read a little bit about this situation. Now, believe it or not, the very conservative U.S. magazine, you could say the preeminent magazine, I guess, for conservatives, it is more conservative than the New York Times for sure or the Washington Post. But in 2009, by Andrew Higgins, it says, How Israel Helped to Spawn Hamas, Moshav Takuma, Israel. Surveying the wreckage of a neighbor's bungalow hit by a Palestinian rocket, retired Israeli official Avner Cohen traces the missile's trajectory back to an enormous stupid mistake made 30 years ago. In quotes, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation, said Mr. Cohen a Tunisian-born Jew who worked in Gaza for more than two decades, responsible for religious affairs in the region until 1994. Mr. Cohen watched the Islamist movement take shape, muscle aside secular Palestinian rivals, and then morph into what it is today, Hamas, a militant group that is sworn to Israel's destruction. Instead of trying to curb Gaza's Islamists from the outset, says Mr. Cohen, Israel for years tolerated and in some cases encouraged them as a counterweight to the secular nationalists of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and its dominant faction, Yasser Arafat's Fatah, 
Israel cooperated with a crippled, half-blind cleric named Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, even as he was laying the foundations for what would become Hamas. Sheikh Yassin continues to inspire militants today. During the recent war in Gaza, Hamas fighters confronted Israeli troops with Yassin's primitive rocket-propelled grenades named in honor of the cleric. Last Saturday, after 22 days of war, Israel announced a halt to the offensive. The assault was aimed at stopping Hamas rockets from falling on Israel. Prime Minister Ehud Olmert hailed a determined and successful military operation. More than 1,200 Palestinians had died. 13 Israelis were also killed. Hamas responded the next day by lobbing five rockets towards Israel's town of Sidorot, a few miles down the road from Moshav Takuma, the farming village where Mr. Cohen lives. Hamas then announced its own ceasefire. Since then, Hamas leaders have emerged from hiding and reasserted their control over Gaza. Egyptian-mediated talks aimed at a more durable truce are expected to start this weekend. President Barack Obama said this week that the lasting calm requires more than a long ceasefire and depends on Israel and a future Palestinian state living side by side in peace and security. A look at Israel's decades-long dealings with Palestinian radicals, including some little-known attempts to cooperate with the Islamists, reveals a catalog of unintended and often perilous consequences. Time and again, Israel's efforts to find a pliant Palestinian partner that is both credible with Palestinians and willing to eschew violence have backfired. Would-be partners have turned into foes or lost support of their people. Israel's experience echoes that of the U.S., which during the Cold War looked to Islamists as a useful ally against communism. Anti-Soviet forces backed by America after Moscow's 1979 invasion of Afghanistan later mutated into al-Qaeda. Skipping ahead a little bit, when I look back at the chain of events, I think we made a mistake, says David Hockham, who worked in Gaza in the late 1980s and early 90s as an Arab affairs expert in the Israeli military. And turning to the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs way back in 2002 by Donald Neff. Special report, Israel created two of its worst enemies, Hamas and Hezbollah. We're going to cover a little bit of territory we've already went over. That's just the way this works. But the decades of the 1980s saw the emergence of two of Israel's most militant foes, Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in the occupied territories. Hamas is responsible for many of the bloody suicide bombings, which continue to terrorize Israel today. Ironically, both groups came into existence in large part because of unintended consequences of Israel's actions. Hamas, meaning zeal, is the Islamic resistance movement. It was founded in the occupied Gaza Strip in 1987, and its charter, which first appeared in February 1988, declared Hamas the infatada wing of the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine. Hamas was a militant outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, a humanitarian group operating in the Gaza Strip since the 1970s, devoting itself to grassroots social work in mosques and civic clinics. The Brotherhood abstained from all forms of anti-occupation struggle. By 1986, 
the Brotherhood controlled 40% of all the mosques and the 7,000-student Islamic University in Gaza. At the time, Israeli authorities saw the Brotherhood as a counterbalance to the secular PLO and contributed to the Brotherhood's cause through favors and donations to mosques and schools. Israeli donations to the Brotherhood were reported to be in the millions of dollars. Hamas published a newsletter first called Hamas, but later changed it to Al-Thabat, or To Build. In the pages of Al-Thabat, Hamas opposed the Madrid Peace Conference, calling it a Zionist ploy to buy time. Quote, Our enemy does not rush towards the peace that some among us desire, the newsletter said. Rather, the peace he wants is, in actuality, submission or resignation to the status quo. Hamas believed in coexistence with Jews and Christians, but only within a Muslim state. It went out of its way in a series of communiques to say it acknowledged Christians according to the Quran and that it sought to work in unity with Christian Palestinians. I just want to say quickly, I've got a friend who's contacted me quite a few times on social media, and he's told me a little bit about what it's like to be a Christian Palestinian living in that area. And he's told me, he's like, yeah, you know, we have some problems with Muslims from time to time, but we live among the Muslims, and our biggest problem comes from IDF soldiers. So I thought that was interesting, and I hope to get some more information from him. Uh, But uh, continuing here, Hamas totally rejected the PLO's quest for a two-state solution. In a document the group described as its covenant issued in August 1988, Hamas said, The Islamic resistance movement considers the land of Palestine to be an Islamic trust for all generations of Muslims. It cannot be given up in part or ceded. No one has the right. The only solution to the Palestinian problem is by jihad. All initiatives, conferences, and proposals are a waste of time. Israeli authorities originally took no action against Hamas's leader, the blind quadriplegic Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, now 50. After the publication of the Hamas Covenant, however, they began quietly arresting Hamas leaders, dozens of scholars, preachers, and others making up the middle and lower ranks were soon detained. Yassin was arrested in May 1989 and sentenced to life in prison on October 16, 1991, after pleading guilty to planning the killing of four Palestinians suspected of collaborating with Israel. He was released in September in 1997 in the exchange for the return to Israel of two Mossad agents who had botched the assassination of Khalid Michel, the Hamas political leader in Amman. Since then, Israel has placed Yassin under house arrest several times, most recently this past June. So, again, we're going back to 2002. So, let's go on to Hezbollah. Hezbollah in Lebanon was the other group Israeli aggression unintentionally spawned. It was Hezbollah fighters who harassed Israeli troops as they finally withdrew from Lebanon in humiliation in 2000. We're going to talk eventually about when they invaded Lebanon, but uh, we'll go on here. After 22 debilitating years of occupation, Israel had scheduled an orderly withdrawal for early July, but pressure from Hezbollah guerrillas forced an abrupt pullout on May 24th. Reported in the New York Times, as a honking convoy of newly captured Israeli tanks by Hezbollah guerrillas 
headed to Bint Jebel in southern Lebanon, Israeli helicopters began buzzing overhead. Soon, they were bombarding some of their own abandoned posts. They also released heat bombs to deflect fire, and their aerial raids briefly delayed Hezbollah's sweep through the countryside. The occupation had been costly to Israel, both in lives lost and in harmful unintended consequences. More than 1,550 of its soldiers had been killed since Israel's full-scale invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Another cost of the Israeli occupation was the creation of Hezbollah among the Islamic Shia population, the majority group in South Lebanon. The Israeli attacks had been tolerated by the Shia, who resented Palestinian guerrillas. After being chased from Jordan during the Black September in 1970, the Palestinians had implanted themselves in South Lebanon, from which they launched attacks on northern Israel, in turn provoking Israeli attacks. Caught in the middle were the Shia. After Israeli troops moved into the area full-time in 1978, however, and treated the Shia with much the same hatred as did the Palestinians, the Shia became fearsome foes of both Israel and the United States. Alienation of the Shia had yet another unintended consequence. It allowed Iran to gain influence in the region. Hezbollah, meaning the party of God, was founded with the guidance of Ali Akbar Motashemi, Iran's ambassador to Syria, and modeled on Iran's Islamic revolution. Hezbollah came from the Quranic verse, those who form the party of God will be the victors. Bound by Iran, by their common sharing of the Shiism within Islam, Hezbollah was directly aided by Iran's revolutionary guards, who began operating in Lebanon following Israel's invasion. The Iranians received logistical help from Syria, thereby drawing Damascus and Tehran closer into a common strategy in the Middle East. Revolutionary Guard fighters were sent to Lebanon to carry Iran's revolution to Lebanon's underclass Shia community and to rid Lebanon of what Iran called 150 years of American influence, twin goals in which they were eventually largely successful. By 1983, Hezbollah's influence had spread to Beirut, where it carried out a series of deadly attacks against the U.S. facilities, including the embassy annex and a marine barracks with the loss of 241 lives, as well as a series of kidnappings of Americans. On February 16, 1985, Hezbollah issued a statement of its ideology in what it called an open letter to the downtrodden in Lebanon and the world. The first roots of vice is America, it said, behind which Israel is the American spearhead in the Islamic world and must be wiped out. All plans, including even tacit recognition of Zionist entities, are rejected. The present Arab regimes are defeatist and under the influence of America, the statement continued. The UN and the Security Council are against the oppressed peoples. The right of a veto should be abolished and Israel should be expelled from the UN. And then it says unintended consequences. Thus, without anticipating it, and certainly without wanting it, Israel's continuing occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and parts of Lebanon and Syria contributed to the formation of nationalist groups willing to sacrifice themselves in the name of Islam. The enemies of old, motivated more by nationalism than religion, were now augmented by Islamic extremism, bent on the defeat of Israel, and now the United States in the name of religion. 
what can you say? It's blowback, pure and simple. And unfortunately, these governments actually thrive when they have an enemy to fight because, well, the bank accounts of the military-industrial complex just goes up, 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 up. And it's a time when you have these enemies that the people will be fooled and their rights will be taken away in order to fight enemies. And, you know, our founders warned about those exact type of things and what they would lead to. Let's look at this little piece from The Intercept here. The Palestinian militant group Hamas has carried out brutal acts of terror against Israeli civilians. And Israeli and American leaders are always keen to tell us how dangerous and evil Hamas is. The inhumanity of Hamas. I have no sympathy for Hamas. That keep shelling Israel with thousands of uh, rockets and uh, mortar shells. But what if I told you that Israel helped create Hamas? Officially, Hamas, which is the acronym for an Arabic phrase meaning Islamic Resistance Movement, was founded in 1987, at the start of the first Palestinian Intifada, or uprising, against the Israeli occupation. But its roots were planted much earlier. The Hamas founder, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, was a half-blind, disabled Palestinian cleric and member of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood had been repressed by the Egyptians in Gaza prior to 1967. But once the Israelis invaded and occupied the Strip, they didn't just turn a blind eye to these Islamists, they encouraged them. See, the Israelis, especially right-wing Israelis, wanted to undermine the power of the dominant Palestinian political force at that time, the nationalist PLO, at the heart of which was the secular Fatah party of Yasser Arafat their bete noire. By empowering Sheikh Yassin and the Muslim Brotherhood, Israeli leaders thought they could divide and rule the occupied Palestinians, play them off against each other, secular nationalists against religious Islamists. So in 1978, when Yassin wanted to officially register his Islamic association, which was basically the precursor to Hamas, the Israelis were only too keen to help. Yassin built and grew a network of Islamist social institutions across Gaza, including schools and clubs and mosques, and Israel helped fund some of those projects. Most American politicians have no clue about any of this, although the former Republican Congressman Ron Paul once made this point on the floor of the House. Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser Arafat. Arafat himself told an Italian newspaper, quote, Hamas is a creature of Israel. He even claimed that former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin admitted as much to him, calling it a fatal error. Now, you might be wondering, why should I believe mad Ron Paul or the famously shady Yasser Arafat? Well, you don't have to. You can believe top Israeli and US officials who've basically owned up to all this. Brigadier Yitzhak Segev, for example, who was the Israeli military governor in Gaza and later told a New York Times reporter that he helped finance the Islamic movement. The Israeli government gave me a budget, he said, and the military government gives to the mosques. Colonel David Hakam, who worked in Gaza in the late 1980s as an Arab affairs expert in the Israeli military, has admitted that the original sin was Israeli support for Yassin in the late 70s. But at the time, he has argued, nobody thought about the possible results. Well, Avner Cohen did. Cohen was the Israeli official who was responsible for religious affairs in Gaza for more than two decades, and who now says, quote, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation. Yeah. Cohen's words. He actually wrote an official report to his superiors in the mid-1980s, warning them not to play divide and rule in the occupied territories and calling on Israel to, quote, break up this monster 
before this reality jumps in our face. But no one else on the Israeli side really took the possibility of blowback seriously at that time. They never do, do they? Sheikh Yassin would eventually be assassinated by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza. The die was cast for blowback. Blowback, incidentally, that they decided to double down on when they assassinated Yassin. You can hear the crowds chanting for Hamas, and any idea that this operation would actually suppress or diminish that organization seems to be ill-judged. The inconvenient truth is that Hamas is in part a creature of Israel's own making, an enemy that Israel spent more than 20 years helping to build up and then spent the next 20 years, the past 20 years that is, trying to bomb, besiege, and blockade out of existence. The three Gaza wars fought by Israel against Hamas since 2008 killed around 2,000 Palestinian civilians and a dozen Israeli civilians. That's the real human cost of blowback. David Long, a former Middle East expert at the US State Department under Ronald Reagan, told journalist Robert Dreyfus, I thought the Israelis were playing with fire. I didn't realize they'd end up creating a monster. But I don't think you ought to mess around with potential fanatics. It's a lesson both the Israelis and the Americans never seem to learn, though. And as usual, innocent people, in this case Palestinians and Israelis, continue to lose their lives as a result. All right, I want to change gears slightly and move to something else. And we're going to look at a book which I highly recommend. It's called The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. It's by John J. Mearsheimer and Stephen M. Walt. We're going to look at page 81. This is a section called Backing the Underdog. This book is very detailed. It's very scholarly. Tons of footnotes to back up what they're talking about. And it's about the Israeli lobby, obviously. It's a huge, powerful lobby. They go into detail on APAC, the Zionist Organization of America, many more. So I highly recommend the book. We'll start out here. Israel is often portrayed as weak and besieged, a Jewish David surrounded by a hostile Arab Goliath. This image has been carefully nurtured by Israeli leaders and sympathetic writers, but the opposite is actually closer to the truth. Israel has always been militarily stronger than its Arab adversaries. Consider Israel's 1948 War of Independence where the popular belief is that the Zionists, who fought against the five Arab armies as well as the Palestinians, were badly outnumbered and outgunned. Now, I've heard about that all my life and how they've overcame such great odds and it has to be divine intervention. I don't blame those people for saying those kinds of things, but they are mostly people who know nothing, nothing of the history. And that's why I'm doing this series, but uh, we'll go on here. Benny Morris, a prominent Israeli historian, refers to this description of the balance of power as one of the most tenacious myths relating to 1948. One might think that Israeli forces were at a significant quantitative and qualitative disadvantage in 1948 because it was a small new country surrounded by Arab states that had far more people and far greater material resources. In fact, Comparing the population size and the resources of Israel and the Arab world tells you little about the balance of military power between them. As Morris notes, the Atlas map showing a minuscule Israel and a giant surrounding Arab sea 
did not, and indeed for the time being still does not, accurately reflect the true balance of military power in the region, nor do the comparative population figures. In 1948, the Yeshiv, or the Jewish settlement in Palestine before Israel was created, numbered some 650,000 souls, as opposed to 1.2 million Palestinian Arabs and some 30 million Arabs in the surrounding states, including Iraq. The reason is simple. The Arab states have been remarkably ineffective at translating those latent resources into actual military power, while Israel, by contrast, has been especially good at doing so. Of course, they have a lot of connections all over the world. A lot of wealthy Jews were able to give money for arms to create armies and security and all those things from Europe and other places in the world. We'll continue this. The War of Independence was actually two separate conflicts. The first was a civil war between the Jews and the Palestinians, which started on November 29, 1947, the day of the UN decision to partition mandated Palestine, and it ran until May 14, 1948, the day Israel declared its independence. The second was an international war between Israel and five Arab armies, which began on May 15, 1948, and ended on January 7, 1949. The Zionists won a lopsided victory over the Palestinians in their civil war because they enjoyed a decisive advantage in numbers and quality of both soldiers and weapons. Jewish fighting units were far better organized and trained than the Palestinian forces, which had been decimated by the British during the 1936-1939 revolt and had not recovered by 1948. As the Israeli historian Ilan Pape notes, a few thousand irregular Palestinians and Arabs were facing tens of thousands of well-trained Jewish troops. Not surprisingly, Israeli leaders were fully aware of this power imbalance and sought to take advantage of it. In fact, Yigal Yadin, a senior military commander in the 1948 war and the IDF's second chief of staff, maintained that if it had not been for the British presence in Palestine until May 1948, we could have quelled the Arab riot in one month. The Israelis also had a clear advantage in manpower throughout their war with the five Arab armies. Morris notes that when the fighting started in mid-May, Israel fielded some 35,000 armed troops as compared with the 25 to 30,000 of the Arab invading armies. By the time of the Operation Doni in July, the IDF had 65,000 men under arms and by December close to 90,000 men under arms, at each stage significantly outnumbering the combined strength of the Arab armies ranged against them in Palestine. Israel also enjoyed an advantage in weaponry, save for a brief 25 days at the start of the conflict on May 15th through June 10th, 1948. And moreover, with the possible exception of the Transjordan Small Arab Legion, the quality of Israeli fighting forces was far superior to their Arab adversaries, and they were much better organized as well. In short, the Zionists won the civil war against the Palestinians and the international war against the invading Arab armies because they were more powerful than their adversaries, despite the absolute advantage in population that the Arab foes enjoyed. As Morris notes, it was superior Jewish firepower, manpower, 
organization, and command and control that determine the outcome of battle. The IDF won quick and decisive victories against Egypt in 1956 and against Egypt, Jordan, and Syria in 1967 before large-scale U.S. aid began flowing to Israel. In October 1973, Israel was a victim of a stunning surprise attack by the Egyptian and Syrian armies. Although an outnumbered IDF suffered serious setbacks in the first days of fighting, it quickly recovered and was on the verge of destroying the Egyptian and Syrian armies when the United States and Soviet Union intervened to halt the fighting. The remarkable turnaround, according to Morris, was due to the fact that the IDF's machines, both in the air and on the ground, were simply superior. So was its manpower. Israeli pilots, maintenance and ground control staffs, tank officers, and men were far better trained and led than their Arab counterparts. These victories offer eloquent evidence of Israeli patriotism or organized ability and military prowess, but they also revealed that Israel was far from helpless even in its earliest years. Today, Israel is the strongest military power in the Middle East. Its conventional forces are far superior to those of its neighbors, and it is the only state in the region with nuclear weapons. Egypt and Jordan have signed peace treaties with Israel, and Saudi Arabia has offered to do so as well. This book's a few years old, but we know now that Israel has been trading with the Saudis and the UAE and some other countries in the area. Syria has lost its Soviet patron. Iraq has been decimated by three disastrous wars, and Iran is hundreds of miles away and has never directly attacked Israel. The Palestinians barely have effective police, let alone a military that could threaten Israel's existence, and they are further weakened by profound internal divisions. The deaths caused by Palestinian suicide bombers are tragic and strike fear in the hearts of all Israelis, but they do relatively little damage to Israel's economy, much less threaten its territorial integrity. Groups like Hezbollah, can launch low-yield missiles and rockets at Israel and might be able to kill a few Israelis over the course of months or years, but these attacks do not represent an existential threat to Israel. According to a 2005 assessment by Tel Aviv University's prestigious Jaffe Center for Strategic Studies, the strategic balance decidedly favors Israel, which has continued to widen the qualitative gap between its own military capability and deterrence powers and those of its neighbors. If backing the underdog were a compelling rationale, the United States would be supporting Israel's opponents. Of course, there is another dimension to the argument that Israel has long been under siege and is always the victim. The claim that despite Israel's military superiority, its Arab neighbors are determined to destroy it. Indeed, some argue that the Arabs precipitated wars in 1948, 67, and 73 in order to drive the Jews into the sea. While there is no question that Israel faced serious threats in its early years, the Arabs were not attempting to destroy Israel in any of those three wars. This is not because the Arabs were happy about the presence of a Jewish state in their midst. They clearly were not, but rather because they have never had the capability to win a war against Israel, much less defeat it decisively. 
There's no question that some Arab leaders talked about driving the Jews into the sea during the 1948 war, but this was largely rhetoric designed to appease their publics. In fact, the Arab leaders were mainly concerned with gaining territory for themselves at the expense of the Palestinians. One of the many occasions when Arab governments put their own interests ahead of the Palestinians' welfare. Morris, for example, writes the following. What ensued, once Israel declared its independence on May 14, 1948, and the Arab states invaded on May 15th, was a general land grab with everyone, Israel, Transjordan, Syria, Egypt, and even Lebanon, bent on preventing the birth of a Palestinian Arab state and carving out chunks of Palestine for themselves. Contrary to the old history, Abdullah's, king of Transjordan's invasion of the eastern Palestine, was clearly designed to conquer territory for his kingdom at the expense of the Palestinian Arabs, rather than to destroy the Jewish state. Indeed, the Arab Legion stuck meticulously throughout the war to its non-aggressive stance vis-a-vis the Yeshuv and the Jewish state's territory. It is not all clear that Abdullah and Glub, the British general who commanded Transjordan's Arab Legion, would have been happy to see the collapse in May 1948 of the fledgling Jewish Republic. Certainly, Abdullah was far more troubled by the prospects of the emergence of a Palestinian Arab state and of an expanded Syria and an expanded Egypt on its frontiers than by the emergence of a small Jewish state. And we'll continue. And Abdullah, as Morris notes, was the only Arab leader who committed the full weight of his military power to attacking Israel, indicating either inefficiency or perhaps a less than wholehearted seriousness about the declared aim of driving the Jews into the sea. Shlomo ben Ami, a noted historian and a former Israeli foreign minister, has a similar view of Arab goals in the 1948 war. Quote, Ill-prepared and poorly coordinated, the Arab armies were dragged into the war by popular pressure in their home states and because their leaders each had his own agenda of territorial expansion. Securing the establishment of a Palestinian state was less of a motive for Arab leaders who sent their armies to Palestine than establishing their own territorial claims or thwarting those of their rivals in the Arab coalition. End quote. The myth of Israel as a victim is also reflected in the conventional wisdom about the 1967 war, which claims that Egypt and Syria are principally responsible for starting it. In particular, the Arabs are said to have been preparing to attack Israel when the IDF beat them to the punch and scored a stunning victory. Now I want to stop here quickly for just a second. Now there's a book called Rise and Kill First, and it is about the assassination programs, for one, of Mossad and the Israeli military. And uh, it's a really interesting book. And they take that title, Rise and Kill First, from a quote from the Talmud, which says, if someone comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. One could say, of course, that's what you should do. And I agree. But I think that you can take anything too far, and I think that these guys have used that kind of uh, mentality as a reason to go after people who haven't even come after them, who may not ever come after them. And they seem to get away with it time and time again. But I will continue with the book here. It is clear from the release of new documents about the war, however, that the Arabs did not intend to initiate the war against Israel in the late spring of 1967, 
much less try to destroy the Jewish state. Avi Shleim, a distinguished Israeli new historian, writes the following, quote, There is general agreement among commentators that the Egyptian president, Nasser, neither wanted nor planned to go to war with Israel. In fact, Israel bears considerable responsibility for the outbreak of the war. Shleim writes that Israel's strategy of escalation on the Syrian front, probably the single most important factor in dragging the Middle East to war in June 1967, despite the conventional wisdom on the subject that singles out Syrian aggression as the principal cause of the war. Ben Ami goes even farther, writing that Yitzhak Rabin, the IDF chief of staff, intentionally led Israel into a war with Syria. Rabin was determined to provoke a war with Syria because he thought this was the only way to stop the Syrians from supporting the Fatah attacks against Israel. None of this is to deny that Egypt's decision in May 1967 to close the Straits of Tehran was a legitimate cause of concern to Israel, but it was not a harbinger of imminent Egyptian attack, and that point was recognized by the American policymakers and many Israeli leaders. Serious diplomatic efforts were also underway to solve the crisis peacefully, yet Israel chose to attack anyway because its leaders ultimately preferred war to a peaceful resolution of the crisis. Let me stop right there and say for a second that the American Jewish author Norman Finkelstein talks quite a bit about how Israel is very hungry for war, and when offered peace settlements and when offered a truce, they've often not went along with it. So I think that's important to remember. And we continue... In particular, Israel's military commanders wanted to inflict significant military defeats on their two main adversaries, Egypt and Syria, in order to strengthen Israeli deterrence over the long term. Some also had territorial ambitions. General Ezer Wiseman, the IDF's chief of operations, reflected this sentiment when he said on the eve of the war, quote, We are on the brink of a second war of independence with all its accomplishments, unquote. In short, Israel was not preempting an impending attack when it struck the first blow on June 5, 1967. Instead, it was launching a preventive war, a war aimed at affecting the balance of power over time, or as Menachem Begin put it, a war of choice. In his words, quote, We must be honest with ourselves. We decided to attack him, Egyptian President Nasser, unquote. The Egyptians and the Syrians certainly did not attack Israel on October 1973, but it is a well-established fact that both Arab armies were pursuing a limited aims strategy. The Egyptians hoped to conquer a slice of territory in the Sinai Peninsula and then bargain with Israel for a return of the rest of the Sinai, while the Syrians hoped to recapture the Golan Heights. Neither the Egyptians nor the Syrians intended to invade Israel, much less threaten its existence. Not only did Israel have the most formidable army in the region, but it also had nuclear weapons, which would have made at any attempt to conquer it suicidal. Benny Morris puts the point well, quote, Presidents Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Hafez Assad of Syria sought to regain territories lost in 1967. Neither aimed to destroy Israel. In fact, key decision-makers in both Cairo and Damascus 
recognized that they were pursuing an especially risky strategy by picking a fight with the mighty IDF. General Hassan el Badri, who helped plan the Egyptian attack, remarked that, quote, it almost seemed that the success would be impossible, unquote. And these doubters were correct because the IDF, after recovering from the initial attack, rooted both Arab armies. With the possible exception of Iran, it is hard to make the case today that Israel's neighbors are bent on destroying it. As noted, Israel has signed peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan, and as will be discussed in Chapter 9, Israel walked away from a possible peace treaty with Syria in 2000. At an Arab summit in March 2002, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia attempted to defuse the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by putting forward a proposal calling for full recognition of Israel by virtually every Arab government and normalization of relations with the Jewish state. In return, Israel would have to withdraw from the occupied territories and work towards a fair solution to the Palestinian refugee problem. The initiative was unanimously endorsed by the Arab League. Even Saddam Hussein backed it. The proposal went nowhere at the time, but the Saudis resurrected it in 2007. There is certainly no evidence that post-Saddam Iraq is interested in destroying Israel. While Hamas and Hezbollah may reject Israel's existence and inflict suffering, they do not, as noted, have the capability to pose a mortal danger. Iran would obviously be a serious threat to Israel if it acquired nuclear weapons, but as long as Israel has its own nuclear arsenal, Iran cannot attack it without being destroyed itself. So I just thought that was important to kind of put all that together there, and it will remind people that both the George W. Bush and the Obama administrations had many, many Jewish members. And again, everyone said that how horrible that he would do a deal with Iran and let them get closer to having nuclear weapons. But then you look and you see who was in his administration. I just think it's very shady and questionable because many of those members worked for groups like APAC or one of these other similar groups. And many of them are what you would call Zionists. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Well, there it is, guys. In all its glory, those we don't speak of, part six. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something from it. You know, it just keeps on going and going. I find out more information and I try to put a show together. So this series is just going to go on for infinity or until I croak, probably, because I've got a lot of other stuff lined up. But I'm going to try to mix it up as well. We've got the National Endowment Part 2 or Democracy is Their Business and Business is Good Part 2 coming up. It's actually finished. I've just got to finish the editing. So it will be your next show. So look for that very soon. And I want to thank all my wonderful patrons for backing me up and supporting my work. I want to thank Ashley, who's the newest member of the Society of Cryptic Savants. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus for being a producer of the show. Please check out the Daily Ruckus on Alternate Current Radio. And please also check out Joseph Author's Technicolor Dreamcast weeknights on TNT Radio where Ruckus is co-hosting. I want to thank No Evil Shall Fear. I want to thank Refsad. I want to thank Jay. 
I want to thank Chris. I want to thank Mark from Housatonic Live. Check out his YouTube channel. I want to thank James. I want to thank Bill, who is a producer of the show. Thank you, Bill, for your support. Thank you, Peterson. Thank you, Rooster. Thank you, John Brisson. Please check out all of John's work, and I will put his links in my show because he got his YouTube zapped a few weeks ago, and he does fantastic work. It's a lot of work that he put into that, and he really needs your support now. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, The Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David, for being a longtime supporter of the show. And last but not least, I want to thank Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Check out his show. Like, follow, subscribe. I also want to thank AlternateCurrentRadio.com, my podcasting home. You can check out all of their fine talk and music shows on there. Also, like, support, and subscribe because they're putting out great content. You can also check out Hesher from The Boiler Room and ACR's show on TNT Radio as well. It's called The Brian McLean Show. So get over there and check that out. I've been on there quite a few times. So, friends, I hope you're doing well. Merry Christmas to you, and I'll be talking to you very soon. Cheers and blessings, and remember, the Zionist order is not our order. See you guys.